When I left town and was hiding the pills so that he would have some enough, so that he didn't eat them all in two days, they last him two weeks, I would hide that day's pills all over the house, and then every morning I would text him and tell him where that day's envelope was. Kathy imagined a lot of things for her retirement, but designing a daily scavenger hunt for pain pills wasn't part of it. The situation had gotten out of hand, but still she put a lot of thought and love into the exercise. One thing I did because of his uh, severe rheumatoid arthritis is I hid them all downstairs. So I wasn't going to make him climb any stairs. I wasn't going to make him go outside. I wasn't going to make him bend over or anything. So for example, while I was gone, the month changed. So I said, don't forget, flip over the calendar today. And so I had an envelope on that day. Or I hid them in the bathroom that he uses. I taped, used duct tape to tape them up under the sink. I, try, I tried to make them so he couldn't see them. Oh, I put some in a box of cereal, you know, that I knew that he'd probably, you know, eat your cereal this morning. By this point, Tom was in the throes of addiction. Now, to his credit, he never tore the house apart, but he did go looking. I did learn the hiding spots occasionally, but she got better. <laughs> and uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't cheat. It made me very anxious, but it wasn't, I didn't feel like she was the enemy, that's for sure. I said, how's it going? And he said, well, it is kind of fun <laughs> to have to go on a search. It's like a little treasure hunt. Kathy may have been managing her husband's addiction in the most creative and loving way possible, but that didn't make it easy. Tom's health, pain management, and substance abuse were now her responsibilities. Because I hid so many of them, I had wrote down where I hid them all because my biggest fear was that um, I'd forget where they oh, no. were. So I had a whole list. And the last one, we, I was flying back to Portland. And so I said, make sure you bring my overnight bag, because that's where the last pills were. I must have reminded him 50 times. And he said, oh, I almost forgot it. But <laughs> well, and that's the other thing is that when you, when he was um, chewing down all these pills and then drinking, he couldn't remember anything. I had to make, you know, and, and again, talk about management. Here's the things you need to do today, you know, get up. <laughs> um, it was, it was, uh, it, it was, I don't know, I mean, I'm good at it, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. Welcome to Voices of Recovery. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger, and this is the finale of our first season. Over the last six months, we featured lots of stories from the addict's perspective. But addiction rarely happens in a vacuum. For every addict, there's usually a parent, a partner, a child, who's pulled into the instability of the disease. For our last episode, we wanted to make sure we highlighted that part of the story. It's been said that addiction is an allergy of the body and obsession of the mind. Often though, that obsession can be infectious. Tom and Kathy's experience speaks volumes to the shared delusion that grips and often binds together the addict and those closest to them. That delusion is believing that the addiction is manageable right up until the point where it absolutely clearly is not. The thing is, it almost makes sense that Tom and Kathy thought they could successfully manage his addiction. Their whole relationship had been defined by their ability to successfully work together. Literally, they worked together for decades. They met in the 70s, working in advertising. And even then, they immediately admired each other's ambition and talent. We met when we worked across the hall. I started as a production person um, in the art department. And so I was constantly running across the hall asking the best art director in the state questions. And that's how we got to know each other. And then in the early 70s when I started, and I, you know, I was 20. So I was 
uh, young. <laughs> and um, it was still a man's world. And so you had to kind of roll with the punches, but you had to be tough. And did you admire her toughness even then? Oh, very much so. She's been, well, not quite as outspoken as she is now, but she was she was tough and she was talented. So that made it uh, well worth watching. <laughs> <laughs> she was innovative. Uh, she, she did things that uh, no one, not, not even men had done. She was just out there. And then... From then on, we sort of merged into companies where we ended up working together for 30 years. It was fun. It was great. It was, um, I mean, not a lot of people can work with their husband, but we certainly could. And and, um, and it was a great ride. It was something that I missed <laughs> in the end. But uh, working with, with Kathy was uh, an amazing um, time because it was... Uh, collaborative and fun to say the least and uh, productive Tom retired on his own terms the RA symptoms hadn't become unmanageable yet but after years in a leadership position it just seemed like the right time to step down at 65 nobody would have predicted that Tom would become an opioid addict I don't think anybody would have thought I'd gone that direction I was sort of a straight arrow guy, really. <laughs> Tom's the exception that proves the rule. Addiction can happen to anyone at any age. But why? How does someone who barely drank on a regular basis become an addict? There's no universal answer, but Tom did struggle with something we've heard repeatedly in our interviews, a lifelong struggle with self-worth. It surprised me how present this issue remains for Tom, especially in light of everything I had learned about his illustrious career. Well, it all is about self-worth. Why is that hard? Why is that hard for me? Yeah. Uh, well, honestly, I don't know why being, my self-worth is terrible. I've always fought against being considered uh, the big guy who was who was very quiet and dumb, and so that's been my whole life's quest. Essentially, is to perform enough. When my body started not letting me perform very well, I really came down. Um, I have fought this my entire life. Now I have this other battle going on, which is not helping in the least. With rheumatoid arthritis, the body's immune system begins to attack itself, causing painful inflammation of the lining of the joints, which in turn can lead to significant bone and joint damage. Symptoms often start in smaller joints, like those in the hand, but over time, a person loses mobility and experiences chronic pain throughout their entire body. Doctors don't know what causes RA, and there is no cure. For Tom, early pain was manageable. He and Kathy continued to work on a few select accounts in their retirement. But within five to six years, the pain had reached a new level. My particular uh, rheumatoid arthritis seems to throughout my body. It has uh, particular places it likes a lot, um, which are my feet and my hands and my back and my shoulders. You know, I was in a lot of self-pity as well. I was a graphic designer. I was having a hard time running, using a mouse very well. And um, I used to be relatively athletic and suddenly I was having a hard time walking. Um, not to mention <laughs> moving in any, any aspect at all. In addition to the RA, Tom had a knee replacement and was prescribed opioids for that recovery. Now, he had already been living with unpredictable, debilitating pain. And for the first time, he was experiencing some relief. And he enjoyed that feeling. So he went to his doctors to get more. 
Ultimately, he would spend 10 years on pills, and Kathy watched as the situation gradually escalated. As he mentioned, he has severe rheumatoid arthritis, and so 10 years ago, his doctors started prescribing you know, painkillers, opiates, and and as his pain increased, they would increase his dosage until it came to a point where they said, no, you can't have any more. And so he started self-medicating with um, alcohol. And, you know, it was sort of manageable, I guess, for a while, although what I've learned a lot about is denial. <laughs> um, but it happened so gradually that I didn't, I mean, I was unaware or refusing to be aware of what was going on until the last few years. And and what had started to happen is he was drinking so much and I would either go out by myself or when we did go out together, he would drink so much that he would fall down. I sort of lost track of time and days. I was uh, had a number of blackouts and it was not helping, but it was something I couldn't quite avoid anymore. I started isolating completely, just staying away from people. It was not a pretty picture. It, it was, I felt like I was a disappointment to Kathy, well, and to a lot of people, and that I was not performing in any way that was useful. It sort of became a circular argument where we just spiraled downhill. Um, I couldn't take enough of anything to make me feel better, except that I guess when I blacked out, I guess I felt better by then because I wasn't thinking about it anymore. Pain is difficult to ignore and terrible to live with. The body experiences pain as a signal that something is wrong, and instinctively, it will set aside all concerns until it finds the source, corrects the problem, and stops the pain. But Tom's RA wasn't a broken bone to set or a wisdom tooth to be extracted. There was no lasting remedy. As his life became increasingly consumed by pain and pills, his behavior became unrecognizable. The whole thing with this addiction of both the alcohol and the thing was that I really learned how to lie, be dishonest about what was going on and anything I, just anything I could do to fulfill this need, and it suddenly became a need. Um, I thought it was sort of serendipitous at first that it was just a nice thing to do. Um, it didn't stay that way. I, I, I'm really disgusted with the dishonesty that I portrayed. Tom's desperate attempts to self-medicate were not working. He was taking higher and higher doses, mixing alcohol with the pills, and he struggled to responsibly manage his prescriptions. It was difficult, and there were there, a couple of times they went 10 days to two weeks without any, and that was excruciating and not very, I wasn't, obviously wasn't very pleasant to be around. The reason why he went a week to 10 days without his pain pills is because he'd already eaten the the prescription and his doctor wouldn't renew the prescription until a certain mm -hmm. amount of days. So the last few years uh, of him on pain pills, I actually took over managing them and I would lock them in a file and I it, so every morning I just put out that day's amount that he could have. If he ate them all by 10 o'clock in the morning, I didn't care. He wasn't getting any more until the next day and he didn't know where the key was. He couldn't get in the file. But at least every day he could try to manage it, which was it hard. It seemed, seemed reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was crazy. and and But he said, all I think about is what time it is and when can I have my next pill. That's all I think about. Who can live? I mean, you don't want to live like that. And and you were, t you know, the he talked about the potency. What we've learned: the more you're, the longer you're taking these. I mean, you can take them till you die, but you get to a point where you can only have so many pills in a day. But your body, your brain, they keep wanting more and more and more. And when they don't get them, guess what? It's a message that goes into your body as pain. So he is in true pain 
but it, the opioids got to a point where they were causing pain. So it was it was a, a vicious circle, and you know I'm there was no way I could help him as much as I wanted to. Having worked alongside Tom her whole life, Kathy couldn't stand by and watch her partner suffer. So she joined him somewhere in the mess of his mounting addiction, and she became his primary caregiver. She assumed this role in a way that many fellow caregivers will recognize. It wasn't really a choice. Someone had to organize the chaos. So she rolled up her sleeves and she took on the responsibilities herself. I think I just made the decision to take them and manage it. I, I'm a smart person and I just thought he's not in control and so I'm gonna be mom. And if he's gonna eat too many candies, I'm gonna lock him up and he can have them as I give them out. <laughs> and I asked him, I said, do you want me to regulate these pills for you? And he goes, I guess you're gonna have to. And let me back up a little bit. I became the manager of everything. All the, all the things that he used to do around the house, all the things that are the guy things, I took over, otherwise I didn't get done. So everything from cleaning the gutters to having the roof redone to getting things repaired to, you know, whatever it was. I mean, his focus and his life revolved around his pain and the, and the pills and the booze and the, so, I mean, it's not like he didn't do anything, but he did 5% of what he used to do. So I became the manager of him and the house and our lives. And I was the oldest of five kids, I guess it came naturally, <laughs> but, but it's not what I wanted to do. That's not how I wanted to spend my life. As the caregiver of an addict, Kathy was in a tough spot. Was she helping? Or was she just denying the seriousness of a situation? Doing nothing while a loved one is in pain feels unacceptable. But giving up increasing amounts of one's life to constantly run damage control begins to also be unacceptable. I resented being put into this position. I really... This is, like I said, this is not, I had just, I just was on the verge of retiring and I just thought, this is, this is not my plan for how I want to be spending my newly found freedom. And, uh, and so I was, I was, I was pretty resentful for him putting me in this position. In the midst of Kathy's efforts to help Tom, her father became ill and began to decline. This is where Kathy came up with her system of hiding pills throughout the house while she traveled to take care of her dad. It's remarkable to think that while dealing with a dying parent, Kathy still had the mental fortitude to devise ways to regulate Tom's use. As her caregiving duties doubled, her resolve seemingly quadrupled. On top of that, I also took all, over all of my father's financial work. And so I was spending more and more time at my desk. And my dad, you know, I changed all his health insurance, but, you know, and then Tom was going through all these changes. And like I said, he'd been in the ER and, and, and we'd had some issues with his, his insurance. I got very, very good at talking to insurance companies and learning about insurance plans and what you can do and what you can't do. I became a bear cat. Um, I became a bitch, <laughs> a nice one with the insurance companies. Very firm. I need answers. Um, how can you do what you do? Who do I need to talk to? Who do I need to throw under a bus? I mean, I, I, I got really good at it for both Tom and my dad. Mm -hmm. Did I want to do that? Hell no. But man, I, it's hard. It's horrible. It was a bit of a balance was also something I had never done before. And so I got, was learning new things, which I like. Um, but it was, it was okay. I mean, my, it was, I don't know, hell. <laughs> There's an old saying, when you're going through hell, keep going. That works to a point. But eventually, no matter how fierce a bear cat you are, something will have to give. Leading up to that final weekend, 
my dad did pass away and I was in Florida when he was able to um, renew his prescription and he got into the pills and ate a whole bunch of them and that's what uh, that also was what led up to that final weekend when because he had eaten way 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 too many pills and and he was uncomfortable about a big crowd and it just all came to a head Hitting a bottom is a mixed blessing. These events are always terrible and sometimes fatal, but they can also be a wake-up call, one that's not pleasant to receive. I remember that weekend as being a, a weekend of great remorse and embarrassment and um, disgust with myself. It just was terrible and embarrassing and we had just lost a whole bunch of rock stars, Michael Jackson and Prince, and I just thought, I'm going to lose my husband to alcohol and opioids, and I don't want that to happen. He's worth saving. I was at the end of my rope by that time. I was not feeling good about me. I was working out how I could sort of leave in some way. Permanently. Yeah. It was not a, I was not in good stead. I was um, always in pain and I was always feeling horrible and I was not doing anything noteworthy anymore. Imagine your life is spiraling out of control. Now imagine at that same moment someone inviting you to accept an award in front of several hundred people. The weekend that Tom and Kathy are referring to involved a major event hosted by a local nonprofit. Tom and I um, were being honored by the Relief Nursery at their main event. There were probably over 650 people there. Um, and we were being honored, being honored for the work that we had done for many, many, many years um, for that organization. Now, being in front of 650 people is not Tom's favorite thing in the first place. So the um the way that he calmed himself and and to be able to be the center of attention which is horrible for him um he got he drank way way too much he took as many pills as he could take that day and then he you know before we even left the house he had started drinking so by early evening <laughs> Um, he was wasted so we got him in a chair we got him to dinner and and we were with friends and acquaintances and business acquaintances. And I mean, and he was, you know, everybody was coming up and talking to him. Well, he finally got to the point at about eight o'clock at night where he couldn't even stand up. So I went and got our daughter and her husband and a couple other friends. And we basically surrounded him and literally, literally carried him out a side door. It was extremely disappointing because this was something that had been worked on for over a year and 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 it was embarrassing for both of us although I think we were somewhat careful but still it was just it was it was a huge huge disappointment the night was a total disaster tom was mortified and kathy was denied the acknowledgement that she had earned it was supposed to be a celebration to honor both of them. But Kathy found herself in a familiar position, taking a back seat to Tom's addiction. The obsession had ensnared them both, and they were each reaching their breaking points. And then the next night, we went to a friend's house for dinner, and I didn't know that he had been in the kitchen sneaking vodka because he had promised me that he wouldn't drink that night. But um, between dinner and, and dessert, he went to use the bathroom and basically got so sick, violently sick, that again, I thought he was poisoning himself. And it took me two hours to clean up the bathroom. <laughs> and so the next day is when I made a, a, reached out to someone I knew at Serenity Lane Sometimes we make small gains only after a big loss. After years of managing alone, Kathy finally reached out and admitted what was really going on. 
I kind of said, I need help. I don't know what I'm doing. My husband's a mess. I, I got to do something. And he said, I will have a counselor call you. And within five minutes, a counselor called me. And when I explained everything that was going on and what I was looking for, well, I was more concerned about the, this is an example of how much denial I was in. Um, I was more concerned about him and the pain pills than I was about the alcohol. So when I went through the, my criteria of what I thought was going on, and she kept asking about the alcohol, and I kept saying, that's not that big of an issue. He can stop drinking. And I kind of explained everything that had gone on that weekend. And she just asked me some questions and said the first step would be to come in and have a conversation. And she said, do you think he would do that? And I said, I have no idea. And so I think I waited a day and and I said, okay, I can't help you. I can't, I can't help you. And you need help because you're going to kill yourself and I don't want you to die. And I said, I'd called Serenity Lane and I've set up an appointment for us to go and talk to him. All we're going to do is go talk. You know, we're just going to look and see what our options are. And he looked up at me from the chair and he said, okay. When it was suggested to me, I first was taken aback that I was so far down the road that that would be required. I mean, it instantly became, yes, I have to do this. I was very apprehensive about going. Um... I guess part of it is being found out, and the other part is failing so miserably that uh, I, I came to this. It was something I had no idea I would ever do, and it was an eye-opener as to, as to what it was about. People will sometimes ask, how do I get into treatment? Between picking up the phone, calling a provider, and checking in for treatment, there's a talk with an admissions specialist. This is when the patient and family learn what to expect in treatment. But before this can happen, it's often a family member or a friend doing the legwork to research and find the right treatment program for the addict. One of my criteria was I wanted to end up at a place that actually had pain management because it wasn't just alcohol addiction. It, it had to have the pain piece of it. And I know there were places in Portland and Bend and all these places that we could have chosen to go to. And I went to all their websites. What I what I liked was that there was actually on staff people that dealt with pain at Serenity Lane. I wanted it to have a pain component because I that's where the trouble started. It, it was with Tom's RA and the pain that he was in it became all-encompassing. Um, and I wanted somebody that could empathize with what he was going through. And they, they would be able to provide or at least give him the tools to manage his pain without doing it through opioids. I didn't know what the answer was. I have no idea. But I, I, there has to be something out there other than narcotics to deal with pain. We hadn't been able to figure it out, and we wouldn't be able to figure it out until he got off of them. That was my that was my hope is that they would they would have tools they would have advice they'd have counseling. I mean, when Tom looked at me and he said, "I just don't think I ought to be here anymore," and I said, "What do you mean, here in the house or with me or what?" And he's like, "No, here, like living." You know, that's a pretty scary <laughs> comment. <laughs> I mean, so and I passed that along that I thought he was super depressed. I mean, I, who, I mean, who wouldn't be? I, I, you know, I get it. As is often the case, recollections of this process are a little fuzzy. Tom, what do you remember from that first interview of coming here? <laughs> he doesn't remember shit. Yeah, the, ver <laughs> the first interview coming here with, with the counselor was, um, well, I was terribly anxious there, but I uh, realistically cannot remember much of what happened there. Um, we talked a little bit about what I do to keep uh, sedated, <laughs> but I uh, really can't remember. I mean, I was, I'm in a fog now. I'm still 
working out of all this, but I was really not there. And that was what, you know, I, I I hadn't been present for a long time. I was on my own road somewhere. I remember that it was caring. I mean, she, she was very straightforward and wanted, you know, wanted to know if I wanted answers too, but, uh, I was still in a fog about it. In fact, the first, when I went in, <laughs> I spent four days in detox and the first week I don't remember at all. And my counselor said I wasn't there. I was, it was, she didn't know where I was. <laughs> But I got better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking at you right now. You guys look great. Tom spent four days detoxing in the hospital unit, after which he made the short walk over to his new room in the residential hall. He traded in his hospital scrubs for regular clothes and began the work ahead of him. I was amazed at the depth of what we encountered when we got here, when I got here. Uh, there were all sorts of avenues to take, whether it was anger management or uh, uh, just talking about who you are and what what's going on. First clear memories were being in the home group and actually talking about what I had been doing and the fact that everyone looked at me like, oh yeah. Something like that happened to me too. It was, it was, I was, I didn't feel like I was out in the cold and, and I thought I was singular, but, uh, that helped a great deal. It was a very, it was, um, surprisingly caring around here. I was, uh, sort of overwhelmed with the, um, uh, that they wanted to help me and, I've always been resistant of asking for help or to be in any groups, um, mainly because I, you know, I'm, I don't feel confident enough to be in a group. But I got over some of that, and that's been very helpful. I talked a lot about why I thought I was doing any of this, and whether that means anything or not, I don't know. But um, at least I was talking about it. It was one of the first places I've ever been where uh, whatever I said was okay. Um, And that they cared about what I said and that what I said might be useful to me. As it turned out, Tom wasn't the only one with recovery work to do. Kathy was aghast when she learned that she was expected to give up eight full weekend days to participate in Serenity Lane's family programming. Even though it was my idea that he come here, I didn't know that I was going to have to play a part. So that was a little shocking to me. Um, It makes perfect sense when you think about it. And it it was good. The family weekends were intensely emotional and... uh, instructive and convivial, actually. I came every weekend, um, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. The morning groups were with all the other family members, which I went into with a lot of trepidation, thinking that this is going to be kind of not my cup of tea, but I loved it. Yeah? Absolutely was shocked how well it was put together. There are lots of reasons to involve family members in treatment, and we thought there's no better person from Serenity Lane to explain some of them than the indomitable Wilma Hawkinson. My name is Wilma Hawkinson, and I am the family liaison. And so what I do is I welcome the family members when they bring a patient in, and I provide Mm, a soft place for them to fall, and I talk about weekend programming. Patients do their own work during the week and then are joined by family members on weekends for group programming. This is where family members start to build their own recovery team and begin to process how they have been impacted. 
it is key for the family members to do their own recovery. You know, a lot of times, not only are they just hopeless, they feel helpless and they're just angry. I really try to validate the family members' anger, their sadness, their fear, their codependency, you know, a multitude of things and denial. Let's not forget denial. Denial is a really, really powerful thing. And actually denial can almost be an addiction in and of itself. Because if I can't see it, then it's not going on, which is not the truth at all. For us, it's really obvious. For parents, um, family members, they don't have any idea the manipulation tactics and all the things that an addict uses as a means to get whatever their drug of choice is. These weekends allow patients and their families to learn, share, and heal together. The objective is to create a shared recovery experience. For Kathy, it was a major revelation. I mean, I learned so much through this program. I mean, I can't even tell you what an eye-opener it was for me. And I found out a whole lot of stuff about what Tom had been doing and how sneaky he was. I knew that he had vodka in the freezer and everybody had told me, you ought to take a, you know, a pen and mark how much he's drinking. And I'm like, I don't really want to know. But there were always half gallons of vodka in the recycling when I took the recycling out. Um, and whether I was just sort of denying it or didn't want to know or just, I don't, I don't know what my, but, um, but all that came out and all that all that got put on the table and it was it was like having this giant weight taken off my shoulders some of the hardest things to do was just writing a letter to my wife and to my daughter and to get one written back some things that i wrote were things i had never said before but what i was mostly overwhelmed with was what was said by Kathy and, and my daughter. This is really the first time that family members can kind of confront-ish the patient in a, um, in a forum that is safe, loving, and no judgment. The patients and family members are able to give each other feedback. And again, it begins to build this beautiful relationship between even between all the family members and the patients because writing those letters you really have to be vulnerable in a way that the patients and family members have not been able to be. Kathy definitely experienced this bond firsthand with the people that she encountered during family weekends. I got kind of close to some of those people. I mean, there were people in those groups that I became attached to in those 30 days. These were, these were other um, family members or they were patients. Because you're sharing all this with 30 strangers, but they're all in the same boat. And they're all from 18 years old. I mean, I went, Tom's 72 years old and you've got 18 year olds in the same meeting. How can that be? That's really stupid. That's what I'm thinking in my brain. But boy, what a great idea. It was an emotional roller coaster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I learned so much and I learned so much about the whole disease of addiction. It's all the same. How it manifests itself and how you deal with it may all be different. And the stories were all over the board, but it was fascinating. It was really an incredible journey. And, and just seeing them from the first week, you know, when they came out of detox and were zombies, <laughs> to when they were leaving and were so excited because they were gonna get their kids back or they were gonna get their job back or they were gonna get their life back. I, I mean, it was, it was incredible, it was, and everybody's rooting for it, you know, it was, it was fraught with good stuff. In treatment, 
Tom and Kathy discovered the power of fellowship. Something happens when people with common experience, shared pain, and unconditional acceptance come together. It all came down to uh, essentially uh, feeling good about yourself and rather than letting um, negative feelings uh, take you down. I was the champion of that, actually. I'm still working on those. I used to be of service, <laughs> it would seem. I did a lot of things like that, but I'm not doing it very well anymore. Going to group, going to AA um, is also part of that, and it is about getting back into uh, a fellowship of, you know, being with people and being straight and being, I mean, straight, being honest and listening. It made me not need or want any of the pain, pain remedies that I had been using. Like most people newly in recovery, Tom has his work cut out for him. He has the tools for sobriety, but he's got to use them. He's currently on pain blockers, but his RA symptoms still persist. There's one that I just recently started that uh, helps a great deal, uh, but nothing touches it. So I end up doing things like well, going to meetings, reading, and sleeping are the only ways I get away from the feeling. Once I'm in my meetings, in um, those are great because I'm not thinking about myself. I'm with others, and that also helps because it gets me out of the uh, the me me me. I'm uh, not doing well, and I got to get over that. Uh, I don't want to go into me now. Uh, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> you still can't. Yeah. No, I can't. Uh, you want some water? No. <laughs> you want to take a nap? Yeah. You look like you're getting really tired. Uh, this has been a hard day anyway. Our interviews are long. Tom sat with us for over an hour, and as the conversation drifted on, he clearly started to hit a wall. Uh, I'm tired, so tired. <laughs> you are tired. You're starting to drift. He said uh, today was a hard day already. Yeah. Why was that? Pain. I don't know. I, I got up this morning and... You know, I woke up feeling totally fragile again, and I don't want to be that. And all this is happening, and uh, I want to put my feet in a freezer or something and let them, so I can't feel them anymore. It was hard for me to come here today because I felt just awful when I got home. You know, how can I get out of this? I can't. <laughs> But, but no, I uh, confirmed with Monique and you had to come. Yeah. <laughs> a sense of purpose, the gift of showing up because you said you would, giving freely when asked to share because it might help someone else. That's fellowship in action. While making this podcast, we saw how people touched by the miracle of recovery will make the time to sit down and share openly with incredible honesty when they are asked. Tom and Kathy are both early in their recovery journey, but it was powerful to sit in the room with both of them as they each told their part of the story. We ended the first episode of our show with some advice from Wilma Hawkinson. So it seemed appropriate that for our final episode, exploring the role of family in addiction and recovery, that we'd return to her. We know that a lot of our listeners are friends and family of addicts. This is a complicated role to navigate. So we asked Wilma for some insight into what she discusses with family members in treatment. 
What's really important is that I explain to them that one of the reasons why the addict continues to do what they're doing is because of shame and guilt. Shame and guilt takes more addicts and alcoholics out. And the family members will say, why can't he stop? You know, he cries and says he's going to stop. Why can't he stop? Well, number one, this is a disease. And when and until we can intervene and get the patient clean from drugs and alcohol, of course, that's what they're going to continue to do. You know, I think that one of the things that really fuels addiction is shame and guilt. The difference between the two is guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. And that is something that as addicts, we embody. And the patients are just so ashamed by their behavior and it's so emotional. So I say to a family member, this is not what they wanted to grow up to be. I can assure you of that. When they are in, when a patient is in active addiction, their power of choice is gone. Their addiction is making all the decisions. And in a sense, what they're doing is medicating themselves. Um, whether that's ADHD, whether that's trauma, whatever it is, they're trying to feel normal. One of the hardest things to grapple with while trying to support a loved one is coming to terms with the role you may play in their addiction. I think that treatment, the results are better when the families participate because I think that before they do, families have no idea how they have contributed to the addiction. I can tell you with certainty that every family member is affected and and plays some kind of part. And it's not that that the family members willingly play a part. A lot of times we don't even have any idea what we're doing in order to contribute to the addiction. Sounds like you're saying there's a difference between playing a part and being to blame. Is that right? The truth is there's nobody there's no blame. There's I don't believe that blame does anybody any good. And what I mean by playing a part in, I mean we can play a part in it and that might be even me not confronting the behavior that I see, oh, I just didn't want to say anything, that's playing a part. And so I think that family members too can reach a bottom, an emotional bottom, a spiritual bottom um, when it comes to living with an addict or being the parent of or family member of. As we heard earlier, fellowship can provide immense relief for the addict. The same is true for the family. Regardless of what structure you choose, it's crucial to find communities and spaces where you can continue your own healing. I think that success depends on our willingness to reach out. One of the things that we do is really encourage Al-Anon. We encourage family therapy. We encourage the family members to, to do their own recovery because what I always say is you can be well regardless of what the patient does moving forward, which is really hard for family members to hear. They think the only way that they're gonna be okay is if the patient is sober. What is so important is that we empower the children, we empower the teenagers, we empower the wives, the husbands. I'm here to empower you, to let you know that Regardless of what the patient does, you can be well. Tom and Kathy's story is still in progress. He was only six months sober when we talked to them, a relative newbie in comparison to some of the other people we talked to this season. Tom is now 13 months sober. I checked in with him and Kathy to see how things are going since we spoke in December. Turns out, they've been taking regular trips to their house on the local islands and going on walks while they're at home. Kathy goes out for eight miles, and Tom amazingly is walking for one to two miles almost every day. While Tom and I caught up, Kathy was out tending to her two-acre garden, enjoying some of her newly available time now that she's not spending so much of it managing an addiction. 
Tom stopped going to meetings, but he says he's now spending most days at the Eugene Yoga Center, taking Hatha classes, and then taking advantage of a nearby saltwater pool, which he used while at Sarandi Lane. While Tom's working outside the formal meeting structure, he's still working his program and using the tools he discovered in treatment, and said that the people in his yoga classes offer their own kind of fellowship. This was really exciting to hear, because Tom had mentioned both yoga and the saltwater pool as things that helped while he was at Sarandi Lane that he missed once he got home. He's still experiencing RA pain, but he's significantly more active than he was six months ago. Before we go, I just want to thank everyone who shared their stories with us this season. As Tom said earlier, it's a huge relief to realize that you're not singular. Special, sure. But alone in your experience? Probably not. Everyone who shared with us did so out of a sense of service, in the hopes that their story might resonate with someone in need. If you or someone you know is struggling with an addiction, reach out. You are not alone, and know that you can be well. Thank you for listening to the season finale of Voices of Recovery. Previous episodes are available at SoundCloud and on Apple Podcasts. Follow our Facebook page and visit our new show website, voicesofrecoverypodcast.org. We'll be checking in there over the break. If you want to support the work that we do, please rate us and write us a review on iTunes to help let other people know about the show. Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers in Oregon and Washington. James Tyson is our fearless producer who helps write the show and keep us on track. This episode was recorded and edited by me, Jackie Danziger. Writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. Our music was composed by Sammy Gallo with additional tracks by C-Stock Audio. Thank you to everyone at Serenity Lane who helped make the show possible. We'll see you all next season for more stories of rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction.